0: Patients don't like to wait for appointments, and long waits can sometimes lead to medical complications and emergency department visits. But in a fee-for-service environment, providers are rewarded for having packed schedules and long waiting lists. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Thomas Lee, a professor at Harvard Medical School and Chief Medical Officer at Press Ganey. Dr. Lee has co-authored a prospective article about provider incentives and patient waiting times. Dr. Lee, do most provider organizations spend a lot of time thinking about patient waits? Or as long as they don't have gaps in their schedule, do they tend to assume that everything is running smoothly?
1: Well, I think that providers, myself included, we think about waiting time, but not nearly as much as we should. And we don't think about enough to take action, in many cases, to fix the problems. And we're talking here about the two-week, three-week, two-month waits for appointments, usually with specialists after a referral's been made. We're not talking now about the waiting in the office for the doctor who's running an hour behind. It's those very long waits for appointments when patients are out of sight and unfortunately often out of mind.
0: You mentioned particularly specialist appointments. Are there certain specialties that are known for having long waiting times or particularly harmful consequences associated with long waits?
1: I would say that it's tertiary Institution specialists, academic medical center specialists who frequently have long waits measured in seasons of the year as opposed to days. Physicians in private practice tend to get people in pretty quickly because they know that it's so important for their business viability. But when physicians are working for big institutions and there's a lot of demand for their services, they can have waits that go on as much as a year, and they have not invested in the systems that it would take to get those waiting times down.
0: So you found that patients awaiting specialist appointments are much more likely to visit the emergency department or be admitted to the hospital than patients who aren't waiting for appointments. Are there any data on how waiting affects long-term outcomes?
1: Well, the data that we present in the prospective piece in the current issue of the journal comes from Geisinger Health System. And the first author is the chief medical officer, Wan Roo, and I'm on the board of Geisinger. And that's how I saw the data and we started talking about writing this up. And the data are pretty compelling that for every five to eight day increment in waiting time for specialist appointments, the rate of ED visits and admissions to the hospital goes up. And frankly, it looks like Many of these cases are not related to the weight, but there are a good chunk that are, that they are patients who get worse, and they get seen in higher intensity, more expensive locations of care. The big issue, of course, is that the patients actually got worse. We don't want that. The unspoken side issue is that, frankly, it's more lucrative for Geisinger Health System to see these patients after they get sick, than while they're still healthy. Now I don't think that anyone at Geisinger or any other place I know wants to let people get sick so they can make more money, but it does kind of make it harder to justify investing a lot of money in systems to get people in sooner, when in fact you're going to actually hurt yourself financially, not help yourself.
0: Even if that weren't the case, how good are providers at prioritizing which patients need to be seen first when they have a limited number of available appointments? Can providers accurately determine who can afford to wait and who can't?
1: I actually think that providers are pretty good. Patients are pretty good too, but neither are perfect. And if the issue doesn't come up, then patients might end up waiting a long time. The famous story that I love very much is how the Cleveland Clinic moved to same-day appointments. And it was not because their marketing people wanted them to do that. It was really one patient who called urology, asked for an appointment, was given one in two weeks, not that bad from my perspective, but that night was in the emergency department because he had acute urinary retention. He couldn't urinate. And the fact is that no one had asked the patient do you want to be seen today? Do you think you might need to be seen today? And the patient was kind of passive. He just took the appointment and then went, hung up the phone and suffered. And that caused the leadership at the Cleveland Clinic to say, come on, we're supposed to be a doctor-driven organization. Can't we at least ask patients whether they think they might need to be seen or they want to be seen? And that's what led them to do it. And it's turned out to be terrific from a business perspective, but it's the right thing to do clinically.
0: So you raised the financial issue, and you say in the article that the fee-for-service system rewards these long waits and overbooking. Under current payment models, are there creative ways for providers to arrange their schedules so they could minimize waiting times but not hurt their bottom line?
1: Yes, I really think that there are. And I think that there are a couple of intertwined strategies. Strategies that don't make sense if you're the CFO of a fee-for-service oriented organization. If you're a fee-for-service organization, it's like telling your CFO you've got to spend money in order to lose money. That's never a very attractive arrangement. But when you're in an environment that's encouraging value, actually meeting patients' needs and doing it more efficiently, then the game changes. Then you want to try to keep people out of the emergency department, keep people out of the hospital, and frankly, you want to attract more patients as opposed to do as much as possible to the patients that you have. So the interests align in a better way with non fee for service systems. So, what kind of things should your clinicians actually do? Well, one thing you do is you organize real teams that can meet the needs of patients without everyone having to be right in front of the doctor. So non-physician personnel to work with you, to do routine stuff where you don't need a doctor, to do phone calls. You try to avoid the need for office visits so that your physicians can actually be available for the ones who are. You put some open spots and schedules so that when the physician does have downtime, when they're not actually seeing a patient face-to-face, they can use that time to make phone calls, to do emails. I mean, that's what I was doing in the half hour before I picked up the phone to record this call. I was taking care of patient care stuff. Every doctor's got that stuff to do. It's great to have it built into your day so that you can actually reach people when they're awake. Structuring team care, non-visit care, actually emphasizing non-visit care, that's a way that you can take care of more people and do a better job.
0: So is there evidence that those new kinds of tools can actually reduce waiting times across the board, even for patients who do come in for traditional appointments?
1: Well, you know, there aren't randomized trials where people have studied one intervention and had a placebo group. So this isn't the kind of issue for which randomized trials, I think, are doable. On the other hand, it's very clear that you can give people really good access and have a successful business, even when most of your business is still fee-for-service. So at the Cleveland Clinic, after they made their move to offer same-day access to every patient who was seeking an appointment. That was 2011. Within a few years, 20% of their visits were same-day, and their volume grew, and it was a tremendous success from a business perspective. But there's actually a lot of pride in the personnel, too, because physicians, nurses, office staff, they don't feel good when patients come in the door complaining about how long it took them to get an appointment. It hurts morale. It increases burnout. So there are surely costs that one might not anticipate when one moves to improve access. But there are benefits that one might not anticipate also.
0: Though, so finally, you talked about an increased attention to value. Do you think that as value-based payment systems become more common, average waiting times are going to shrink? Do you think? Do you think that that's the answer?
1: I do, because I think that when you move to a value-based payment, you're competing for market share, but you're not just competing to put any patient in the seat in front of you, because at the end of the day, you'll all be paid $75 for the 20 minutes or 30 minutes that they're sitting in front of you, regardless of who it is. You're actually competing to grab market share and then hold to it. You need patients to want to stay with you because you create value for patients by taking good care of them over time. You don't create it in just one visit by penny pinching on the radiology or the pharmaceuticals. You take good care of people over time and that means you have to hold on to people over time and giving people very ready access becomes the obvious thing to do. Wherever you see providers who have moved into value-based
0: contracts,
1: as soon as they figure out what this business is about, they work very hard to give good access to patients.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lee.